Well, I hope you men are surviving the absence of your wives, as many of them are gone to the women's retreat. Uh, but those of you who thought you were going to escape infliction, you're not going to. Because we are going to address a tax directed right at women, specifically vid- uh, widows, but it, um, it has application to all women. And uh, I think as we go through this text uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have one, you can probably find one in the pew. And uh, we're going to be looking at widows. All the way through the Old Testament and into the New, God has a special place in His heart for widows, and especially you read things about widows and orphans frequently. Those are some of the most vulnerable and some of the most needy people. And God has great compassion on them and expects His people to have great compassion on them. As far back as Genesis chapter 38, we see Tamar, who was a very young widow, um, being taken care of and she moves in with her father-in-law, Judah. It was common that if you were a widow, that your family members would take care of you. In Exodus 22.22, it it commands us uh, that we shall not afflict any widow. In Deuteronomy 18.10, it says God executes justice for the orphan and the widow. And throughout Deuteronomy, you find laws and regulations about taking care of and watching over and, and protecting these vulnerable people in society. And if you look at the prophets, you will find out that the prophets often prophesied judgment against Israel because they were not taking care of the widows. Even in the story of Ruth and Boaz, you see how widows are to be taken care of as Ruth is a widow and she is married by Boaz through the laws given in the Old Testament about Leverite marriage, the kinsman redeemer law, that if someone died, you were to um, take um, uh, their wife. If you were, uh, let's say you had a brother and uh, your brother was married and that Um, brother died, if you weren't married, you were to take that woman as your wife and raise up offspring for your brother. That was the Leverite marriage. And we see the whole kinsman-redeemer thing played out in the story of Ruth and Boaz. And even in the New Testament, as in James chapter 127, it defines a true and undefiled religion as visiting orphans and widows in their distress. So this is a a really major topic. It's sprinkled all the way through the Bible, but especially here. This is a very concentrated and sustained dose. And it kind of makes me uh, marvel that Paul would spend this much time addressing this issue in any book of the New Testament, let alone this book directed to primarily to leaders in the church. It tells us that, that this is still something that God feels passionate about and it is still a very high priority in the church. And so what we learn from this text is how to take care of widows, those widows who are in the family of God or the church. Now, before we we get into the text, I want to give you quite a bit of background information and make you think about things because it will help you understand the text better. Remember, we're talking about Paul writing to Timothy, who is pastoring at Ephesus. It is a different time. It is a different culture. It is a different government. We need to keep that in mind. We need to remember what we learned when we studied about uh, giving, that Christians were generally persecuted because they were Christians. 
Because in the Roman idolatrous culture, Christians openly condemned idolatry. This made them a favorite target of persecution. In addition to that, Jews who would convert to Christianity would be persecuted and taught, treated as dead. In addition to that, um, some of the Romans felt like Christians because they believed Jesus was the king of kings were going to plan some coup to overthrow Rome and install Jesus. Others uh, were just repulsed by Christians and persecuted them because they had heard rumors that the Christians were cannibals, that they actually ate the body and blood of Christ. In addition to that, the Christians who were in hiding often hid in what were called the catacombs, which were like large tunnels and tombs. When someone would die, you would take their body and kind of put them on a shelf and, and leave them there. You wouldn't necessarily dig a little square hole and stick them in the hole like we often do. You would put them on a shelf, and then sometimes after their, their bones decayed, you would crunch them all up and put them in a little box, and that would be them. Well, these catacombs were places a lot of times under the city or out of the way, and Christians found out they could hide there because those who weren't Christians were so superstitious, they were scared to go there. And so when, they, when it became known that the Christians were hiding down there, then they thought, man, they must be worshiping the dead. I mean, they worshiped Jesus and he died. And so all of these things combined brought great persecution upon the church. And there was no welfare system. There was no, you know, Medicare and Medicaid and retirement and Social Security. And so if you were a widow... In that early church, you were in big trouble unless you had somebody to take care of you. And so we need to keep that in mind as we look at the text before us. And Timothy um, must have asked Paul some questions about what do we do with the widows? I mean, do we support them all? Do we feed them all? Do we put them to work? I mean, what, what, what do we do? And so, as you can imagine, um, answering that question brings up a lot of other questions. For instance, should some widows be supported or all widows be supported? And how much? And if some widows aren't to be supported, which ones? And why? And what do we tell them when they see the other Widows being supported and they're not being supported. And you can imagine all of the problems that would arise trying to take care of these widows. And so Paul very carefully answers these questions. Now, what's great about it is even though this was written to a different time and a different culture, a culture that didn't have Social Security and, and didn't have any, a government which kind of took care of the older people like we have in our country, um, there are still principles here that apply to the church in general, to families in general, to widows in general, and to all women in general. And so we're going to find some great truths in this text. Now, I was talking to Justin this week, and, and uh, I was saying, yeah, I'm going to try and you know, get through verse 8 of chapter 5, and he started laughing at me. He was scoffing at me. I couldn't believe it. I said, what are you laughing at? He says, you won't be able to preach all those. He won't be able to get through. I was thinking I could get through this whole text, 3 through 16, in two weeks. And he was saying, you're never going to be able to do that. And I told him, oh, yeah. And just so happens he was right. 
I'm not going to be able, I don't know how long it's going to take me, but um, there is some great things here, some things that, you know, you just don't realize how many goodies are in a text until you really get into it. And so I don't know how long it's going to take, and this messes up the schedule and that we had, but our schedule is to keep preaching, so we're going to do that. All right. The other thing I want you to think about before we, we, uh, we look at the text and I, I tell you this because I want you to notice this when I read the text and as we go through it. Oftentimes in our society, we have this whole idea of what is called the social gospel. Many liberal churches, and even now many of the conservative churches, you know, evangelical churches are getting in on the bandwagon of the social gospel. The social gospel is that, you know, let's get involved in in, in good works. Let's, let's, let's feed the poor and, and raise money and do, you know, canned food drives and, and um, you know, get out in society and plant trees and, you know, whatever. I mean, you just, you, you do good. Um, you, you do socially, um, you know, acknowledge good deeds. And many churches use the bulk of their resources to do these kinds of things. And that is what I mean by the social gospel. The problem is, is the whole term social gospel is really an oxymoron because they never get the gospel out. They never preach the gospel. See, there is a difference between feeding somebody and feeding somebody so you can share the gospel with them. There is a difference between helping somebody who is, you know, on the street and, and getting them back to where they can function in society, getting them training, getting them um, uh, just used to taking care of themselves and ha- holding a job and checkbooks and just basic things to many of us, to helping people do that and helping people do that and sharing the gospel with them and when they repent, getting them involved in church and discipling them and building them up in the faith. That is ministry. The first one is just government work. And the church is called to do ministry. And so everything we must do must involve the gospel, preaching the gospel, calling sinners to repentance. And when they repent and when they receive Christ, to bring them into the church, to disciple them, care for them, get them involved, have them sharing their gifts, have them sharing their own faith, and getting out into society and doing it to other people as it was done to them. And so often there is no distinction made at all in the area of who is worthy of support. A lot of times we think, well, if you're if you're poor, you you need to be supported. If you're a widow, you need to be supported. Well, that's how the world thinks of it. But the Bible actually commands us to practice discrimination. Thinking, oh man, that word discrimination. I mean, you throw that out in the world, and it's just you know hate crime. But we are to discriminate. And if we don't, we're sinning against the commands of the Word of God. You see, there is a great difference, isn't there, between a person who is poor and destitute because they have squandered their wealth, indulged their, their, their flesh, have, have maybe gambled it all away or drunk it all away or done everything they can to sabotage their life, and a person who is poor because of circumstances which are totally out of their control. There is a great difference, let's say, between somebody who is in prison because they have murdered or robbed or committed some great crime and somebody who is in prison because they have preached the gospel. 
And the Bible makes those distinctions. And a lot of times when people read the Bible, you just read the Bible and you just say to yourself, well, you know, they're poor. They're, they're in prison. Why are they in prison? How did they get poor? These things matter a great deal to God. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10 said this because some of the Thessalonians weren't working. They were waiting for the coming of the Lord and they were kind of, you know, around dinner time, they'd kind of start loitering around your house. Hey, how you doing? This is what Paul said. If anyone does not work, neither let him eat. Paul says, if somebody is not willing to work for their food, let them starve. People, that is biblical discrimination. That is the most loving thing to do. And you're saying, well, Jack, how could that be loving? Because it's what God says we are to do. And God always commands what is loving. Is it the easiest? No. Is it socially acceptable? No. But is it acceptable before God? It's not only acceptable, it's commanded. Working for food is a biblical mandate, not an option. And so as we come to this text, I want you to remember that there is a priority between those inside the church and those outside the church. Those who have suffered because of their sin and those who have suffered because of righteousness sake. Those who have been inflicted because of their own bad decisions and those who have been inflicted because of circumstances beyond their control. And believers in the church are to receive preference. Galatians 6.10 says we are to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And we see that there is this difference in this text. There is some discrimination going on even between widows. Even between widows. Now, before we look at and we read the text, there's one more thing I want to point out before we even read it so you can kind of follow along. There are two different groups of widows in this text that Paul singles out. If you look at... Chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, if you have, let's say, the NIV Bible, it might read, or it does read, widows in need. If you have the New King James Version, it might call them really widows. Or if you have the English Standard Version, truly widows. Now, some of those translations are confusing and this is why. It makes it sound like some widows who some women who actually had a husband die are not truly widows or really widows. But Paul is not making a distinction between who is a widow and who is not. He assumes that all women who have lost a husband are widows. The distinction he is making in this text is between those who are worthy of financial, regular support by the church and those who are not. Those who are widows indeed would be this select group that the church would find its responsibility to support and then there would be the rest of the widows who didn't fit into that category. So I tell you that, so when we read through this chapter, you can see the differences that he makes between the two groups. And we, of course, will go through this in some detail. But follow along as I read verses 3 through 16. 
Paul says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own own, especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow who is to be put on is to be put on the list only if she is not less than sixty years old, having been the wife of one man, having the reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge." At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. For if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed." Now, man, there is some great stuff in this chapter. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do the first half and the second half, and that didn't work. And then I thought, well, I'll try to do most of the first half, and that didn't work either. And so we are going to look at three of the verses. Now, the problem is, the problem is this. In this section, Paul goes back and forth to widows, widows indeed, families of widows, leadership, husbands, wives. It keeps going back and forth addressing the category. So what I decided to do is just to make this a little bit easier for you to package is we are going to look at categories of information. I have isolated six categories of information from the text and put them into question form. And let me just give them to you now and we'll work through these in the next few weeks. The first is, what does it mean to honor widows indeed? Secondly, what makes a widow a widow indeed? Thirdly, what are widows who are not widows indeed responsible to do? Fourth, What are all widows responsible not to do? Five, what are family members responsible to do for their widows? And six, what is the church or the church's leadership responsible to do in relationship to widows? And these are all the things that we will address as we go through this passage. It addresses all those things. So we have some really great practical things in this text. Now, the first we will answer is, what does it mean to honor a widow indeed? 
What does it mean to honor a widow indeed? Notice verse 3 says, honor widows who are widows indeed. This is a command. A command to honor. Now, most of us kind of have an idea of what it means to honor. We look at the Bible and, you know, we see the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and mother. And most likely Paul was using, you know, it was at least alluding to that when he's talking about honor these, these widows. And, and we know generally it means to honor or to respect or value or to treat with reverence. That's the general meaning of honor. It means to have an attitude of value placed on somebody or something so that you treat it in a special way. And this is how it appears if you look at chapter 6, verse 1, when it's speaking of slaves and masters, it says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God in our doctrine will not be spoken against. Notice, slaves are to honor their masters. And we could go to Romans 12.10, where it speaks of all believers are to show preference to one another in honor. So honor is just having a, a, a preference, a, a treating somebody special, especially believers. Yet the word can have another meaning, an additional meaning. It means everything it does in the way we have just described it. But an additional meaning is to include material resources in there somehow. In other words, it's to honor so as to give gifts or sacrifices or financial support. We see this in the Old Testament as the believers were to honor God with their sacrifices. We see this, for instance, in, in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 10, where it talks about the Queen of Sheba. Do you remember the, the, the story how the Queen of Sheba came and visited Solomon? And, and you know Solomon was all wise and rich, and his kingdom was at its you know, apex. And she came and was so amazed that she honored Solomon. And this is how she did it, according to 1 Kings 10.10. She gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones and never again did such an abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. So she not only had an attitude of reverence, but with that attitude of reverence gave materially. That is how it is used in the text before us. When it says honor widows, it means give them financial support. And we can tell from the reference to putting them on a list, there was a special list of people who would receive regular assistance from the church. Now, that is not to say that a widow who doesn't qualify to be a widow indeed would never get any financial assistance. But what it's saying is, is there were certain people who would be put on the list who would receive regular support. And so please keep that in mind. I'm not saying that, you know, some widow who doesn't make all these qualifications, which are pretty lengthy, you just go, oh, be warm and filled. No, we aren't talking about that. The church would help meet the needs of anyone, but wouldn't continually support those who don't meet these qualifications. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Jack, are you sure that it's talking about financial support? Well, yeah, let me just give you some reasons. First, Paul couldn't be saying, I want you to honor a certain group of widows because all widows are to be honored. And as we saw from Romans 12, all believers are to honor each other. So he must talk, be talking about a special kind of honoring. 
Secondly, if you look at the text in verse 4, it talks about if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. That is, they must help support their own parents. That is, give financially. The text is talking about financial support. Look at verse 8. The text speaks of the, every believer's responsibility to provide for his own household. That is, give financially or materially. Again, if you were to look down in verse 9, it says a widow is to be put on the list. The list of what? The list of financial support. Also, if you um, go down a little bit further and you look at um, verse 16, it says if a, if a woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must first assist them. The church must not be burdened. That is financial burden. And so if you look at those things in the, the near context and even go on into verse 17 where it switches subjects to elders. Notice what it says in verse 17 of chapter 5. The elders who rule well are, are to be considered worthy of double honor, literally double pay, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And then he quotes the um, scripture, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is thrashing, and the laborer is worthy of his Wages. It's talking about paying. And if you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul quotes the same text and says, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? He says, no, he's talking about preaching. People, we need to pay the preacher, feed the ox. The whole concept, the principle doesn't just have to do with, with preachers. It's anything that causes you to receive benefit, that thing is worthy of support whether it be a laborer or a preacher or whatever. That's the general principle. Here, um, we see both in the near context and in other places that this word honor is frequently used to describe material sacrifice or blessing or financial support, and that's how it's used here. Paul is trying to tell Timothy, listen, this group of people you support regularly. You make sure you take care of them. This group over here... You don't have to put them on the regular support list. So that's the distinction that's being made as we approach this text. Now, the question then arises, okay, if we honor widows who are widows indeed by giving them regular financial support, what is a widow indeed? I mean, how do you tell which one's which? You know, you're supporting one and the other is looking over there. Well, I want to be a widow indeed. And so... Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us those discriminating qualifications which let us know which women qualify to be a woman indeed, or widow indeed, rather. Look at verse 5. Notice what it says there. He says, Now she who is a widow indeed, who has been left alone, literally all alone. Now you can just stop there. A widow indeed is a widow who is left all alone. If you look back in verse 4, notice what it says in verse 4. It, ta it talks about um, if a widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. What this is talking about is there are some widows who are not left all alone. They have... They have uh, 
you know, children and grandchildren. Um, if you included verse 8, there are some widows who, who have members of their household, maybe in-laws or, or relatives or brothers and sisters. And those people, he says, must take care of their own. He says, if they don't, they are worse than an unbeliever, which is a pretty scary thought, isn't it? But the whole point here is this is a widow who is all alone in the world. No kids, no relatives, an all alone widow. And you can imagine being a woman in this situation. How, how scary that would be to have no one to turn to, no one to help you. You're all alone, all by yourself. Maybe if you were advanced in years, maybe even no means to even take care of yourself, maybe being feeble and just unable to do really much of any work at all. And that would be a very scary place to be in. And so this, this instruction is to say, hey, the widow indeed must be one of those kinds of women. A woman who has lost a husband and now has no one else. No one else who can take care of her. The second qualification for a widow indeed would be in verse 5. Notice she has fixed her hope on God. Not only has she been left alone, but the text says has fixed her hope on God. Now we get into character things. That first one is pretty much beyond their control. You can't help if you've been left all alone. You have no control over that. But this qualification and most of the ones that follow, you do have control over if you are a woman. And what does this mean to fix your hope on God? Well, it's a perfect tense verb, which means at a point in time you commit yourself to trusting in God. And from that point on, you remain in the state of having put or fixed or placed your hope in God. And notice the text says that she must be this kind of fixed hope on God woman. Now, this, of course, would not just refer to widows, would it? I mean, isn't it true that all women, regardless of their station in life or circumstance, would all need to be women who fixed their hope on God? If you are a woman, would you describe yourself as a woman who has fixed her hope on God? Is that the continual pattern of your life? Do you defer to God and trust in God? Or are you a woman who maybe is a fretter and anxiety and worry and, and always going to other people when you have never even gone to God? You have never really asked God. The primary reason most women have a hard time fixing their hope on God is that they don't know God very well, in some cases at all. And, you know, it's hard to trust a stranger, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to trust somebody you don't know. You, you know, it, you think, well, I know I need to trust God, but who is he? And if you've never studied God, if you've never really dug into the scriptures, if you've never really found out about God, it is very difficult to trust God. And one of the major contributing factors to people not knowing God is people don't read the Old Testament. And most of our information about the character and attributes of God are found there, not in the New Testament. 
And we're going to be doing a series this next fall, maybe winter now, on the attributes of God. But we'll get there eventually after we finish this book. The whole point is, is that if you are sitting out there and you're thinking, you know, Jack, I want to fix my hope on God, but I have a hard time trusting him, you need to study God. You know, you need to get A.W. Pink's book, a little book. It's good, it's short, sweet, and yummy on the attributes of God. Or you need to get, you know, Tozer's book on the knowledge of the holy. Or you need to get Jay Packer's book on knowing God. Or get all three of them and just study them. Or if you want to get a really good book, if you're just a hardcore studier, get Stephen Chernock's book on the existence and attributes of God. Probably the greatest volume ever produced on God and his attributes. And study God. Get to know God. Because the better you know God, the easier it will be to trust him. You want to trust him. You'll know you can trust him. But if you don't know God very well, it's really hard to trust him. You can ask my wife about this. When we were um, newly married and, you know, she would be saying, you know, I'm trying to trust God and I'm trying to, you know, not be anxious or whatever. And we did a study on the attributes of God and it just totally transformed her life. She said that was the most life-changing study she ever did. And all of these little besetting anxieties and things that she was working with, they just, they, they just went away. Why? Because she found it much, much easier to trust in God once she found out what God was like. And so make sure that you work hard at getting to know God, and this will help you fix your hope on Him. Third, third qualification or criteria is found at the end of verse 5. Look there. Not only does she, has she been left alone, and not only has she fixed her hope on God, she continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. This is just painful. I mean, I remember Oswald Sanders saying, you know, if you want to humble any man, just ask him about his prayer life. I mean, no one thinks they pray too much unless they're self-deceived. I remember talking to my seminary professor who said, pray for me because I only have four hours to pray a day. And my list is so huge that even in a week, I can't get through it all. <laughs> that is pretty convicting. And you read these stories about, you know, Mueller and Ian e. Bounds and some of these guys were just prayers. You know, Martin Luther said, I have so much work today. I must get up two hours earlier to pray. You know, it's hard for a lot of us to even relate to that. But part of it is, is we have a misunderstanding of prayer. Prayer is not always folding your hands, heads bowed, you know, beseeching God, going through organized lists. Sure, that might be part of it, and that should be a part of it. But prayer is also having a consciousness of God all the time. Having God in your life. Walking around and thinking about God and talking to God and asking God for things and praising Him for things when you're at work and when you're in the front yard and when you're doing the dishes. Just all times of your life thinking and communing with God. This is another aspect of prayer. So don't feel too bad unless you don't even do that. And if you don't pray for anybody and if you don't go through your life thinking about God and talking to God and praising God, it might be you don't know God at all as far as in a salvation way. I mean, we have a bunch of couples here, a whole slug of them that are engaged to be married. And, and it would be very strange if they never talked to each other. 
As a matter of fact, if one of them decided not to talk to the other one, there would be a major problem. Now, you could imagine. It's like, hey, 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 how come you don't talk to me anymore? How come you don't return my phone calls? I'm waiting. Well, in the same way, God wants us to talk to him. He said, hey, hey, I saved you. I sent my son to die for your sins. I, you know, you committed your life to me, wasn't it? I am your king, aren't I? And when we don't want to talk with God, we just tell God, you aren't that important. I've got other worldly things I've got to deal with. But this woman who is worthy of support, this widow who is worthy of support, this widow indeed is characterized as having continually given her life to entreaties and prayers. She is like Anna the prophetess. Do you remember Anna the prophetess in this Christmas story? Her and, and Simeon, the Anna was in the temple. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 37. Even though she was the age of 84, the text says she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayer. Everyone knew Anna was this way. This was the characteristic of her life. This was her pattern. Everybody knew it. And when you're talking about a woman indeed, a widow indeed, you ask yourself, is she this kind of woman? If she's not, she's not worthy to be on the list. Don't put her on the list. She's got to be this way. Secondly, if... or, or the second section here, if you turn, look down in um, verse 9, not only is she to be this woman who has been left alone and fixed her hope on God and continues in her treaties and prayers night and day, and I mean, if that, those were the only three qualifications, the number of widows indeed would be very small indeed, wouldn't it? I mean, that is a pretty fine filter. Well, in verses 9 and 10, there's eight more criteria. Eight more. I mean, this grid gets so fine, you'd think, oh, the church is left off the hook now. But you can imagine why, the, why it's small, because all of a sudden, if you start putting people on the payrolls of the church, that just would drain the church's resources. So Paul has to say, listen, if you're going to put somebody on regular support, this is the grid they've got to get, go through. And if they don't go through this grid, don't put them on the list. So look at the fourth criteria. The fourth criteria at the beginning of verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. Now this is one of the other criteria or qualifications that you really don't have much control over. You know, if you haven't gotten to 60, it's, sorry, you can't be put on the list. It's just the way it is. But if you're 60, you're instantly old. So just so you know. 60 is kind of like, I guess, in that time was similar to, you know, when you get to be 64 and a half so you can retire. But the whole point is, is she is to be a woman and she is to be 60 years old or more. The fifth criteria is she is to have a reputation of having been the wife of one man. Now, does that sound familiar? Sounds kind of like the elder qualifications and deacon qualifications, doesn't it? If you look at chapter 3, verse 2, if you look at chapter 3, verse 12, it talks about elders being the one-woman man and deacons being the one-woman man. Well, this is the being the one-man-woman. 
That is, her life needs to have the reputation of having been devoted to her husband in a pure way, in a chaste way. Not in a lewd or flirtatious or immoral way. If you knew that a woman was that way, she would not be put on the list. Because she would have showed herself unfaithful to her husband. Now, it's not saying that she could have only been married once. You know, maybe her husband divorced her or maybe her husband died and she was remarried once or twice. It's not saying that she could only have one husband. It's saying that whatever husband she did have when she was alive, that husband she needed to have continual devotion to and to treat with respect and and be a godly wife to. So that's when it says that she needs to make, or that makes, needs to make sure that she is um, the wife of one man. Now, I'm going to say more about this later, um, but look at verse 6. The, this is the contrast of that. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Paul makes a sharp distinction between the, the one man woman and the woman who is a multiple man woman. Now, sixth, look at verse 10. She has to have a reputation also for good works. Now, that is interesting because it doesn't just say she has to do good works, but verse 10 says having a reputation for good works. Works. In other words, when you look back at her life, you see that maybe when she, before she was married and while she was married and after she was married, she has this reputation of doing good works. Now, what's interesting is, is if you look at the end of verse 10, it, at the very end, it says, if she has devoted herself to every good work. And you might think, well, Jack, you know, why does he say it twice? He doesn't. There are two different Greek words that are translated good in this passage. The first one is kalos. That's how it's used at the beginning of the verse. And that, that Greek word describes um, good to look at, aesthetically beautiful or excellent or noble in character that can be observed. In other words... Paul is saying, when you look at a widow indeed, you will see and you will have seen a pattern of her applying the word of God to her life. Her Christianity is lived out in the things she does. You know, one of the misconceptions we have about holiness and sanctification is that that, that holiness is some sort of, you know, glow. Some sort of aura, you know, some renaissance picture with some person with a little glowing halo around their head. You know, they kind of have, they're in this state of holiness. But when you look at the Bible, holiness is almost always defined by doing. When it says you are to be holy for God is holy, it's not saying just work up a state of holiness. It's talking about doing Sanctification, which is the process of growing in holiness, is the process of doing, not just being. 
And this is what the widow indeed must be. She must be a woman who is characterized as applying the word of God to her life so that people can see it. This nobility. And this is nothing new. If you look back at chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, and you look at verse 9, Paul talked about this in the worship service of the church when women come together. It was common back then to women to flaunt their wealth by, by putting it all in their hair. You have these huge elaborate hairdos, and we talked about that earlier where you know they have gold and pearls and all their wealth would be stuck on their head, and then they'd come in looking like a portable you know jewelry shop. And there would be poor, poor people in the church, and, and you know they would be looking and lusting, and it was just a mess. And so this is what Paul says. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, he's not saying you can't ever wear any of those things, but in the worship service, it's not the place to flaunt your wealth. You know, when you're, the context, you have to take into, you know, if you're going to some fancy ball or you're getting married, I mean, you wear different things. But in the church, it's modestly and it's discreetly so that you don't attract attention to yourself. But look at verse 10. But rather by means, instead of attracting attention by what she wears or doesn't wear, um, rather by means of good works is as proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. That is, if you're going to attract attention to yourself, do it by your good works. And so not only is this principle true of women in general and women in the church in general, but widows indeed have to have a reputation of having lived like this. Now, you ladies who are sitting out there and you're thinking, I escaped the woman's retreat, I need to ask you, are you this kind of woman? When people look at your life, when your neighbors, when the people at work or friends, people at church, when they look at you, what do they see? Do they see a woman who has the reputation of always applying the word of God to their life? Or do they see you as chameleon-like, having blended in to the world? And this is an important thing that all women need to look at. And you husbands, just be glad it's not your Sunday. Um, You know, we all need to look at our lives and ask ourselves, what do people see? But here the whole point is, if you are going to be a widow indeed, you should have had apply the word of God consistently throughout your life. You don't just become a widow and say, okay, I'm going to be godly now so I can get support. It's too late. You don't have the reputation, you don't get the support. Now, the seventh, the seventh criteria, and this is the last one we're going to do today just because, um, you know, time's running out and we want to save some for next week. That's how it worked out. Seventh criteria, she must have the reputation of having brought up Children. Having a reputation of having brought up children. Now, what is this talking about? Is it talking about just being a mother? Do you have to be a mother to be a widow indeed? No. No, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying if you have been a mother, you need to have the reputation of having brought up children. But being a mother is not necessarily the criteria any more than Having a wife is a criteria for being an elder or a deacon. It's just saying, if you do have one, make sure you treat them this way. If you do have children, make sure you have the reputation of having raised them up. 
But he's not just talking about this whole brought up term. He's not just talking about feeding them and, you know, clothing them and making sure they got big so they could leave home or, in worst cases, stayed home. <laughs> but the, the whole emphasis is that they raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord in a godly way. In a godly way. And what I mean by godly way is that you would be like Lois and Eunice. You remember Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother? Where in 2 Timothy 3 it talks about, I think in verse 15, 14 and 15, it talks about, Timothy, you know that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which what? gave you wisdom leading to salvation from a very young age. And we know from chapter 1 that it was his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who instilled into Timothy the Word of God. This is what is meant by brought-up children. Most parents, most women feed their kids and you know help them get bigger and grow up that way. We're talking about biblical parenting here. We're talking about an emphasis on bringing them up in God's ways, not the world's ways. You ladies who have children at home, are you diligently training your children? Are you imparting to them the word of God? Are you teaching them what's right? Are you teaching them what's wrong? Are you modeling the truth? Are you reading them the Bible and showing them the principles? You know, so often you would think in our society today that that sports are the ultimate priority or piano lessons or being famous or looking a certain way and dressing a certain way. But those aren't the biblical priorities. The world says those things are a priority, but not the Bible. The Bible says knowing and obeying God's word is the most important thing. And even if you never played a sport, and even if you never dressed according to social norms, you could still get to heaven and be everything God would want you to be. God calls women, especially since they are working with, with children day in and day out, to have this mindset. Deuteronomy 6. To take, to take everything you do, whether it's you know, taking out the trash or washing the dishes or staying in the front yard or sweeping or driving around in the car, things you see, things you encounter, food at the grocery store, um, everything that you can. You try to take that information that you're, you're the world around you and you try and take it and integrate it with what the biblical worldview with what the scriptures say about food, with what they say about working. You don't just say, you know, hey, take out the trash. I mean, you do that. But your kid needs to know why. Why do we take out the trash? Well, there's a whole bunch of biblical principles. You could go on forever on the theology of taking out the trash. You know, respect for others, um, doing what your parents say, obeying your parents, honoring your parents, learning how to work. You know, life is work, the work ethic, the being a sluggard. I mean, all of these things you could just, you could teach them and teach them, and you should. And by the time, you know, they're leaving home, they should have a good theology of work and taking out the trash. And that, 
that so often it's so easy because you can just have children and just you know keep feeding them and they just keep growing and then they leave and and it's work isn't it it's work to say okay now how can this be a lesson here now what does the bible say about this what is a principle i could teach them about this and the godly wife is the wife who is looking for ways all the time to take God's principles and instill them in to her children. Now, again, this text is directed at women, so I'm beating up on them, but I want you to know, husbands, I just say this, just to relieve the wives for a minute. If your wife isn't doing that, it's your fault because you're the leader. And you need to encourage your wife and show your wife and model to your wife this kind of thing. Almost always in the scriptures, when it talks about training children, it almost always addresses the fathers, not the mothers. I think one of the plagues in society today is that that husbands have totally abdicated their position as as spiritual leaders in the home. And the wives are the ones who are going to study, and the wives are the ones who are grinding away, and the wives are the ones who are memorizing verses, and the wives are the ones who are serving in the ministry, and the husbands are just working. And it shouldn't be that way. So if you are a mother right now, and you realize that you are not fulfilling your primary responsibility to your children, then you just need to repent. You need to confess your sins and you need to make a plan of attack, you need to get some information, contact Brock, I mean, that's what he's there for, and say, Brock, I need to know how to instill God's word in my children. And this fall, we're even going to have a parenting class, and you can come and learn how to do it then. But the whole point is, don't just say, oh, I should be doing better. Make a plan. When you leave here today, what are you going to do about it? Do it. Because there is nothing worse than having grown old and realizing that you, your kids are all full of Nintendo and not the Word of God. It's so easy to put in there. I remember one time when I was um, reading Leah when she was about three years old, Cinderella. And, uh, and we had, it was just one of those little tiny condensed books. And so we were reading Cinderella. And, um, and so I open up the book, and I, I said, well, you read to Daddy. And so she just does. Well, she can't read. So I flipped the page. She said it again. I flipped the page. I said it again. I flipped the page. She said it again. She did the whole book. And some of you have experienced the same thing. That just from repetitious reading, she had memorized everything you say when you look at that picture. When your child is young, they are so ripe. I mean, they can learn so much of the Word of God. Do not squander those early years, especially because those will determine the rest of the course of their life. Well, sufficient is the conviction for today. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your Word. And Father, I just think of them, the moms out here and the wives and the widows and maybe even some widows indeed. And Father, we want to come alongside them as a church. If we are husbands, may we encourage them. If we are leaders, may we be examples and models to them and feed them and teach them your truth. Father, we pray for those who are widows. Father, we pray that we would honor them and respect them, both in attitude and if necessary, support them financially when needed. 
Father, that this church would not be under your condemnation and curse because we have afflicted or oppressed in any way the orphan or widow or anyone else who is needy. Father, we want to minister to people who have needs and we want to do it according to your word. We want to love them exactly like your word says by helping them to work if they can and support themselves if they can and learn to work and gain respect from contributing and not just receiving. And Father, for those faithful wives here and mothers and grandmothers and widows, Father, I pray that you would help them to reach out to those who need help. That Father, there might be mutual encouragement and mutual affirmation that we would be a body where we don't just hold to our own area, but Father, we would reach out and practice godliness so that the older women could teach the younger. Father, we love you for loving us. Help us to share that love with other people in the way your word prescribes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.